Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Today, we are going to update you on what's going on with Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a minute. (laughs) Our last Vallow update was back in May. So we have a lot to share with you. We're going to start, though, because we have a lot of newcomers and a lot of people that are new to the Vallow case coming in. So we're going to start with a recap. So if you are new, you're not going to be completely lost. And it's going to be a brief recap. So if you need to go back, you can. Also, if this is your first time listening, welcome. And if you've been with us for a while, you are welcome to skip ahead to just the updates. If you'd like to skip to the new updates, you can skip to about 17 minutes in. So as Amanda mentioned, we have been covering this case for some time. And we're going to talk about some of the central events. There are so many little details that I think are really relevant when you're trying to understand the case. So if you feel like you need a bigger primer than where we're at right now, just keep scrolling down until you see Sinister Love. That's our original Valo episode. We cover everything. There's a lot. There's a lot. And we also, if you go to our website, we have a timeline. We also have a glossary of people who are involved in the case because there are so many people involved. And that primer includes everyone from family members to law enforcement to whose attorneys are who. So let's start. In the fall of 2019, Larry and Kay Woodcock started to get really worried when they couldn't get in touch with their grandson, J.J. Vallow. And he had been in the custody of his adopted mother, Lori Vallow. Now, earlier that same year, Lori's husband and JJ's adopted father, who was Kay's brother. So like follow that around. Kay's brother was JJ's adopted father, but also Lori's husband. He was shot and killed by Alex Cox. Now, Alex Cox was Lori's brother. And originally it was deemed self-defense, but later it would end up being reclassified as a homicide and charges would be filed for conspiracy to commit murder. And then after months of not being able to get in touch with JJ, Kay and Larry are able to get Rexburg Police, which is in Idaho, to go and do a welfare check. But they were unable to locate JJ as well as his sister, Tylee. And during this time, the wife of Chad Daybell, her name was Tammy Daybell, she unexpectedly dies. Weeks later... Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell go to Hawaii and, you know, they casually just get married. Yikes. Yeah. In December of 2019, Tammy's body is exhumed. They did not do an autopsy the first time and they decided one's finally needed. So the next day, right after she's exhumed, Alex Cox unexpectedly dies in Arizona. Now, let's come back to Hawaii. So while in Hawaii, Lori is ordered to produce the children. So JJ and Tylee in early 2020. Lori clearly does not produce the children, and she is then arrested for obstruction charges. In June of 2020, Chad Daybell's property is searched, and the remains of both Tylee and JJ are found. Tylee had been mutilated and burned, and JJ had been wrapped in duct tape and trash bags. Horrific. Yeah. I still get really sad talking about their bodies. It's terrible no matter what. But when you think about the fact that they were children. Disgusting. So Chad was then arrested and both Chad and Lori were charged with destruction of evidence. In 2021, Tammy's autopsy is completed. Then Chad and Lori are both charged with conspiracy to commit first degree murder as well as murder charges. Later in 2021, Lori is charged with conspiracy to commit first degree murder in relation to Charles's death. 
So this next part is also a recap, but some of the Facebook groups that we're in that talk about this case, a lot of people are talking about this as though it was new because 48 Hours re-aired their special with Chad Daybell's children. And just as a note, all of Chad Daybell's children with Tammy were adults at the time of all this happening. Yeah. So we wanted to talk about this again because I think it resurfaced and it brought up, you know, things that we've we've talked about before, but I think it's been a minute. And also, if you're new to the case, this must be the first time that you're hearing about this. Yeah. And I know one of the first things I thought about when I realized that he had adult children, I was like, what do they think of this? So to start, his kids don't think that Chad radicalized Laurie. This special aired, I believe, before Laurie was deemed not mentally competent to proceed. So it's interesting that that kind of order of events. But they said that Chad had never said anything to them about cults or zombies And again, if you're new to the case, Sinister Love is like where it's at to find all the information. But when they say zombies, kind of what they're talking about is demon possession. They talk about people being light or dark. And basically, if someone becomes a zombie, they are no longer themselves and that that person has died and there is now something else inside of them in their place. So it's not JJ entirely they did these things to they were already gone. So that's kind of like the mental gymnastics that's being done here. And so his kids are saying he never talked to us about any of that. And they said that they didn't even know about Lori's children until they were already missing. So weird. Yes, yes. The Daybell children claim that their dad is innocent. Okay. So they knew he got married, right? They found out he got married, but he didn't say, you have step siblings. And that would be something that you would say, even if you had adult children, like it's not like they're going to have like to live together, but oh, like you're going to have more family. And they had met Lori before. And you would think like meeting your kind of like your new stepmom, right? Like even though you're an adult, it's still your stepmom now. Yeah. She would have been like, oh, I'm a mother. I'm this. I'm that. Like, yes. Just didn't come up. Very weird. Yes. But so... Chad Daybell's son, Garth, said that he was in the house when Tammy died and that he heard a thump and then he heard his dad yell, Garth, Garth, come quick. And when he came in, his mom was half on the bed and half on the floor. And he said to his dad, I think she's dead. Now, Chad was pacing back and forth saying, this can't happen. How could this be? What do we do? We've discussed before, Chad and Lori were also saying that she was going to die. Yes, Yes. Like that he predicted that she was going to die and that she didn't die when he thought she would. Same thing with Charles. They were like, oh, he didn't die when he was supposed to. Mm -hmm. So like, I'm still thinking this is even though he probably was grieving, right? Like it was his wife for a very long time. But also, I don't think he could have been that surprised, you know, like I think that's kind of acting. Oh, I don't think he was grieving. I don't think he was grieving at all. So the coroner said that it appeared that Tammy had died from natural causes. Chad had told them that her health was failing. Her daughter, Emma, said that Tammy had had shortness of breath. She was going to sleep earlier and earlier, and she was getting fatigued more easily. And the kids said that their father was so traumatized that he let the kids make the decision. Perhaps it was an act so that he wasn't the one saying, don't do an autopsy. Yep. And so his kids are like, if he was trying to hide something, he would have made the decision and not put it on us. And I'm like, yeah, but he was planting those seeds of she's going to die and is sick. Yeah. Before that. So that when you got to this moment, you were like, she was sick. Like she did have shortness of breath. She was getting tired more, just like he had told us. Right. Like that is where I'm like, I think that he just manipulated his children as well. Right. And so Garth Daybell said that law enforcement believed that Tammy had been asphyxiated. Yes. So this also made us think of an article that was published a while back from East Idaho News. 
And it said that a friend of Tammy's, Mandy Fowler, spoke to Emma after Tammy's death. And Emma supposedly said something along the lines of she had pink foam coming out of her mouth. And so we looked around at like, you know, general causes for asphyxia. And it could be anything from choking, a foreign object lodged in the respiratory system or throat, suffocation, strangulation, drowning, the tongue blocking the airway when a person is unconscious, and examples of injuries or illnesses that can happen that could cause it. Here's just a few. Collapsed lung, inhaling toxic fumes like carbon monoxide, heart failure, sleep apnea, drug overdose, or asthma. So there's a lot of different things that could have caused asphyxia. Also, just to note, there are many reasons pink foam can come out of someone's mouth after they die. And the most common reason we could find is when a person is dying, they may struggle to breathe and they may have a coughing fit. And some of the small vessels may rupture. And it's seen in a lot of types of death and it's completely natural. Hmm. I never heard of that, which is interesting and terrifying at the same time. <laughs> yeah, like before we've discussed this, I didn't know about that. It sounds like a byproduct of something nefarious. It does. Yeah. Which I do think something nefarious happened. But yeah, that also can be natural. So people have threatened Emma's children after this. And I don't think that that's OK. Like clearly her children didn't do anything wrong. They were just born to. Yeah you know, this. They didn't They didn't ask for this. So leave Emma's children out of it. And she also said, anyone who said my dad killed a person doesn't know my dad. And I'm like, Emma, you have grown up with him, right? Like, I would also ask many killers children, like, did you see that coming? I would guess a lot of them's like, no, I would, my, my dad or my mom would never. Just like uh, Colby with Lori too. Like, my mom's not a killer, right? And then all of a sudden, oh my gosh, like what happened? I am more on the side that I think that they were manipulated over a period of time for years, right? Like I know that Tammy had seen her family recently before she passed and they were like, she was fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wasn't she training for a marathon? That's what I heard. Yeah. So yeah, very, very weird. But Emma did also say that we need to remember this is just one side of the story. And I'm like, okay, but like evidence, evidence is also another side. Yeah. So April Raymond, who was Lori Vallow's friend, said that JJ and Tylee were the center of Lori's world. I don't know what happened to change that. Lori told April that Charles was an evil being. And April thought that perhaps Tylee was a liability for what she had found out and what was going on. And I think that's unfortunately might have been the case. Like she was present at a lot of it and she knew the other side of it. Yeah. And I think Lori was nervous about that. And also having kids just got in her way of doing what she wanted to do with Chad and like leading these people and all of that. So which is wild to me that the problematic belief structure that they were able to actually think was real enough to do this, these horrible things. Yeah. Yeah. So Leah, another one of Chad's kids said everything keeps getting piled on us. And I do feel bad that like his kids are kind of seeing the aftermath of all of this. From what we know, they didn't, they weren't in on it. I do suspect maybe one or two of the sons knew a little bit more, but that's just my, my thoughts. No proof. So Emma tried to explain why they think he was framed. And she said, I mean, these kind of make sense though. He wouldn't bury in his own yard because of how open the land is. There's much better spots on the property. And that's true. I actually 
a while back, I posted a video when I went to his property and I kind of drove around the corner. There is very, very open spaces. So like, that makes sense. But also, they they felt like they were untouchable, right? Like they were above the law. They were above everything because they were gods. So I see it and then I don't. Another thing she brought up is he used to be a grave digger and he wouldn't dig a shallow grave. And he was a grave digger at one point. And I actually read his book a while back, which I just wanted to see what he was like before. And he did work in a cemetery and talked about like every step of what happens. And it, it was kind of interesting. But also, even in his writing, he seemed really full of himself. And he also like oddly judged people and like, it was very weird. It's just weird writing. I think that when you are a person who has low self-confidence, you judge other people more. Like you're more unforgiving of people's flawed existence when you have not come to terms with your own. When I've been my bitchiest and most petty, it's been when I didn't feel great about myself. Yeah. So like, I, that's what I think that is. But like, also like, he was a grave digger. He knows how to dig a grave. That doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean that in like the height of a problem, that's how he does it. Right. Also, if you are a property owner, part of the job of owning property is to look at your property. If you see disturbed earth on your property, you should be looking and seeing what that is. You should wonder. I mean, I don't have as much property as he did, <laughs> but would you do the same thing? Like, I was like, I would definitely notice there's something like that. And yeah, I have a friend who has like double digit acres of property. So if it was something like that, maybe, but this was like a place that was part of like the house proper area. Like it was like close to everything. You would have noticed that there was disturbed earth. Yeah. When he went to the back at all, you would have seen, I would think if he would have walked out to, there's like a little shed thing. But anyways, yeah, I think he would have noticed. And yeah, like we had a squirrel move in under our garage. And like the day that he did, I was like, something looks weird. Now, did I move it or fill it in? Absolutely not. The squirrel will live there until he dies. That's his home now. That is his home. I just live here. Yeah. So it's been a while since I watched the interview, but I do remember thinking like, what did he do to his kids? You know, like to have them so blind in a sense, like to their mother just dying because I feel like if that were to happen to anyone I know they'd be like I want to know how my mother died I want to know exactly why she died is it a disease is it something that could happen to me is it something that can happen to my kids is it something I should have known the signs for like I feel like that's something that everyone would think of again like I haven't lost a parent but even like when we've had family members get really sick or get something, not to be selfish, but it's like, is this something that I need to watch out for? Is it something that I could have passed down to my kid? I want to know. My dad had his first bypass when I was 10 years old. And so heart disease has always been a part of the life that I've had with my family. And I've always known that like my dad has very intense heart problems. And so he had a double bypass. Then he had another bypass when I was 14. Then he went in and they basically sent him home to die because they were like, we can't do another bypass and your arteries are blocked and we can do nothing. And so that was 11 years and about two and a half months ago. Wow. And I looked at my dad and I was like, this is because we were at the hospital. and I was like, this is your last turkey sandwich. And my dad went vegan and fat free. And he actually grew his own like new arteries. <laughs> like he made his own bypasses. That's cool. Because he was eating so just like so many things that were great for his body. Right. But I bring that up because during the bouts of my, my father's life, when he has had 
like when I've known he has active heart disease that is like he's not doing well with. If he would have died, we likely would have assumed it was that. Yeah. And then then if someone was like, your mother did it, I would be like horrified that they could think that about her. So if I had a logical thing in my head, I would be like, but she's had this problem. Why would I automatically assume my dad did it? Right. Like I can see I can see how they would have hesitation to believe it was their dad if they're like, this isn't the type of human he is. And she had this health issue. We knew about it. But it wasn't like a diagnosed health issue, though. From what I understand, it it was like she had some coughing. She might have had a cold. Also, like they're believing this or not believing this does not change the outcome of this case. Like there is it seems like there's solid evidence. Like I don't think them believing or not believing is going to change much because anything that they would know, I think, would already be shared unless they were suppressing some type of evidence. And if that was the case, I can't imagine that they would not give it to the police. Right. If he did, if they were like, we have evidence that he did kill our mom. I don't think a reasonable person would not turn it over. I don't know them as humans, so I can't say that. But I just mean like the average person. I have many questions about what Garth saw that night, but we don't know everything either. Like we don't know everything that's happening. So exactly. And if this case does make it to a trial and there's not plea agreements, that's something we're going to find out. Yeah. He's going to be subpoenaed. He will be a witness. Mm hmm. And they'll say, why did you come into this room? Right. Like they'll ask those questions. So I think that, you know, come January, we'll have answers. Yeah. And I think the only way we won't have answers is if there's a plea agreement, which I'm interested to see whether the state would make any type of agreement with them that would take the death penalty off the table, because I mean, that would be the carrot. They would likely wave in front of them. But so continuing on, Nancy Grace shared part of her interview on Facebook, and she had like several people who like knew a bunch about the case. And we didn't see a free way to watch it. And we weren't going to give money to Fox News to watch it. So we watched this clip. And in it, Nate Eaton from East Idaho News is on the line. And he said, Tammy had died from asphyxiation. And Nancy's like, well, what particular type of of asphyxiation? And what Nate said was that he does not have the information on how in terms of whether there were ligature marks or Tammy was suffocated. He just noted that Garth Daybell had said that the authorities had told him that she had been asphyxiated. And then also as part of this, Garth has mentioned in the past that law enforcement has lied to him. And just as a note which I find fascinating. In the U.S., generally, police can lie to people. They don't have to tell the truth, which you would think would not be the case. So it's completely possible that like law enforcement said a cause of death, thinking like that would make the children then say like, oh, I found insert thing that could have been used in asphyxiating another person and would have provided that evidence. Like I could see that being a rationale, but that's truly just like wild speculation. Oh, maybe. So another thing that we saw this month, which is more interesting, more so than, uh, you know, big case related details, is what Chad is eating while behind bars and what he's getting from commissary. So another inmate saw that he has gotten Taster's Choice Coffee, Turkey Bites, which are little jerky things, Jolly Ranchers and Vanilla Wafers. What a meal. What a meal. So if you're dying to know what Chad likes, this is this is it, I guess. We also learned some information about where he is. So Chad has a one-person cell where he sits by himself listening to the radio or reading. Hmm. Perhaps he's portal jumping. Oh, maybe. (laughs) He doesn't really interact with the other inmates unless he's eating meals. 
And all I thought is no one wants to be his friend. No one wants to play with him. I've never been in jail or prison, but from what I understand, people generally frown upon people who hurt children there. Yep. So I don't know if that's like he just wants to be alone or that no one wants to be near him. I'm guessing no one wants to be near him because he likes to like boast, right? And he likes to talk to people and tell people about crazy things. And everyone's like, nah, I'm good. Yeah. And again, this is just what someone, another inmate has said. So, all right. Now we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on in the case. Despite the state's best efforts to have the trial in Fremont County, the case will be heard in Ada County. Ada County is ramping up for the trial and they're already doing a lot of preparations. It's going to be a big thing. And the good thing is Ada County is larger, which means that there will be a larger jury pool, which is good. And Administrative District Judge Steve Hippler discussed some of the ways in which they need to prepare, including things like finding space for Judge Boyce and his staff, finding parking for the news outlets because they're going to be insane, summoning a sufficient number of potential jurors. He noted that there could be thousands of potential jurors summoned, which is insane. Have you ever had jury duty, like when they want you to stay for a while? I've been summoned, but I haven't been heard. I also likely would be dismissed like immediately because I'm an attorney. They don't want me there. (laughs) Yeah. They wanted me to do one on Halloween once. Monsters. Yeah. I went in and I had to do all kinds of like weird like tests on paper and they'd ask me a million different questions. And then they're like, okay, you're going to have to report back on October 31st. And I was like, never. You're like, I lied. I hate forks. You know, like, no, it's hard. That's hard. Like, I would not mind serving on a jury because I'm like, that's my civic duty. I don't want it to be on Halloween, but I am like my civic duty. Also, like, I just feel like it's don't start cases on Halloween. Luckily, I was dismissed, but great. (laughs) Yeah. Not that I wrote weird stuff on my test, but it reminds me of did you ever watch 30 Rock? Yeah. Like Tina Fey. She's like, I dress up like Princess Leia. (laughs) Yeah. And then they were like, eh, have you seen everyone else? And Everyone else is just equally as crazy. Yes. I love that episode. It's funny. And then also as a preparation, that questionnaire I just talked about, they're making sure that, you know, the summon jurors will also be completing a written questionnaire to whittle down the jury pool, which makes sense. Uh, They're also scheduling additional security for all parties which is necessary. Yeah. So now we're going to get into the filings. And we're going to do a summary of some of the big filings rather than going through every detail because it would just be kind of boring. But we're going to make sure to mention every big piece that is interesting to know. There's also questions about whether the cases would be severed by the fact that Lori's right to a speedy trial was not waived. And there are statutory limits to how long after a preliminary hearing the trial can begin. The state did move to have Lori's case continued so it would match Chad's timing. So they will be together still. Nothing's been severed. The trial is scheduled to begin on January 9th of 2023 in the final pre-trial conference before the case is scheduled for November 9th. Mm -hmm. That can be moved, though. So that's not set in stone. And Judge Boyce ordered that the grand jury transcripts be shared with Lori's counsel and Chad's counsel, which fair. Interestingly, in the state's motion to continue, they said, quote, Lori Vallow Daybell's mental health is extremely complex and fragile, and she has the potential to be hospitalized again in the near future. That kind of concerns me. I feel like it's like a way to get out. I don't really buy it. I don't know if you do. I don't buy it. 
we talked about this in a, in a past episode, but we talked about what might get someone deemed not mentally competent to proceed. I think her ideology is out there enough to perhaps get them there. It's a possibility that she was fully dialed into this belief structure, right? Mm-hmm. It's wavering. And that she was like, this is what's happening. Da, 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 da. And what will happen when she realizes that that is all fiction? That's true. And that her children are dead. I am not saying that I feel bad for her. And I'm not saying that I sympathize with her in any way. But I would imagine that she would be like just mentally like ruined if she were to break that belief structure and come to terms with the fact that what happened to her children because of that, not to mention Charles, Tammy, right? Like, I think the children part would be like the first step. And like, I could see your brain doing a thing where it's like, I can't believe that this ideology is not real because what have I done if that isn't true? Yeah. So I wonder if that's kind of like the gymnastics that they're going through and that in order for her to stay present in understanding that that is fiction and what's real is that you were a part of your children's death, that might be a hard thing to keep solid there. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's what we can hope for, right? Like that she actually shows some sort of remorse and kind of humanize her a little because she just seems like a monster, right? You know, I don't even hope for that. I don't give a shit about her. No, I hope she feels bad. I hope she feels bad. I hope that like that's an added. Oh, yeah. I want her to be in horrific pain. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, she deserves it. Like, I I don't like that. She's just like, you know, when she goes to her court appearances and she looks like she has no feelings and she's just like, okay. The experts and everything say that she is not faking her mental illness. It's just I wonder if they're using that a little bit, too, to be like, we need more time. We need this. I don't think that the professionals in the, you know, hospital and all of that would be like, okay, she doesn't need to be here. I think that they would say that. I just, I think she's such a good actor. I think that she is a professional. And so I question it. I think that that would have been more of a concern with Mark Means. I think that now that we have some seasoned attorneys who have reputations and histories and relationships on the line because of this and are not here to be a soundbite on the news and are not here for fame, I think that it is less likely that there will be shady maneuvers like that. I mean, let's hope. Because they have to defend her zealously. That's just part of what you have to do as an attorney. But you do not have to break the rules. And chances are, like, I mean, they've they've already kind of come out swinging. And we'll talk about it in a bit. But, like, I don't think they need more time. Yeah, maybe. I just, like I say, I don't trust her. I don't trust her at all. So Pryor filed various motions against the prosecution themselves, specifically filed motions to have Rachel Smith and Rob Wood removed. He's like, they're too good. I don't want them here. (laughs) (laughs) Additionally, he filed a motion forcing Smith to provide details for all cases she has or is currently working on. Judge Boyce is like, nah. And he denied all three motions. Makes sense. Well, and that's the thing is that they were sealed, right? So we couldn't even see what he was arguing. Yeah. No, it was just, they're better than me. Can you get rid of them, please? And he's like, no, bro. Yeah. I'm feeling outnumbered now. (laughs) Also, based on a transport order that was recently released, we know that Lori will be transported from the Madison County Jail to the Fremont County Courthouse on 816 for a hearing. And this will be the first time that Lori and Chad are in the same courtroom since March of 2020. And as an interesting note, at that point, he still hadn't been arrested. So he was actually free at that point. There were also numerous motions to seal various filings. And 
Lindsay kind of mentioned that a minute ago. In one of the groups that we're in, so on Facebook, there's a lot of discussion groups around Laura Vallow and Chad Daybell. We saw a discussion as to why so many filings were being sealed. A lot of people had questions like, why is this happening? Yeah. And so generally filings will be sealed so that information that would further prejudice jurors doesn't get circulated. And I feel like anybody who has heard this case will already have an opinion of guilt before the trial begins. Mm -hmm. Sealing is a pretty standard practice, especially when there's a bunch of media exposure. And we already know so much about this case. And we've even talked about that in relation to other cases that we cover, that sometimes we don't have details and it's like we get a little bit frustrated because we're like, but why can't we find everything? I want it now. Yeah, I want it now. I want the details. I can I get it in this other case because in this particular case, there's an abundance of information and it's already out there. So it's already kind of an anomaly in that way that we already have a lot weighing against Laurie and Chad even before the trial begins. Also, one of the things that we have is we know when things happened. We have communications between parties that have existed with real conversations talking about what seemed to be violence against people, right? Where they were suggesting that there was going to be something done. Yeah, we have like text messages, dates and timestamps. Like it's a lot. Yeah. And a lot of that comes from the Gilbert Police Department's investigation being shared. And that was, I mean, what, thousands and thousands of pages of documents that were just out there. And honestly, even before that data was shared, there was still so much that we knew. And so we're thinking about why would you seal it? Well, because we want those jurors to be able to kind of hear the case and make a decision based on what is presented to them, not what is presented in the media. Yeah, we want a fair trial. We don't want appeals. We don't want any of that nonsense. We want everything to just be fair and good the first time. If I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. I don't fucking like Lori Vallow. That doesn't mean that she's not entitled to a fair trial as a United States citizen. We want to have a functioning justice system. It's already hanging on by a fucking thread. And one of the ways in which murderers get out is on technicalities. And when there are errors in, you know, how things are handled and pretrial motions and all of this nitty gritty stuff that doesn't seem very sexy in terms of like case details, but it's important. And that's one of the reasons why I'm sure they they treaded so very lightly when it came to Lori's mental competence. They were like, we're not even going to make this an issue on appeal. Like, right, like we're going to deal with it now. We'll take our time because it will be worth the justice. So having that in mind, right, knowing like sealed things, sealed documents, closed hearings means that jurors are not going to be tainted. That's like the number one thing, right? The reason why you want that. Yeah. And because it kind of does mean that the person who's on trial gets a fairer trial because not every little thing can be included in the trial. Not every piece of evidence passes muster. So keeping that in mind, and there is an intervener who has filed a motion for injunctive relief. And she's also filed other filings that relate to this. We're not going to get into the procedural soup of what she had to put in. But it's Lori Hellis, and she is a criminal defense attorney. But her relation to this case is as a member of the media. So throughout her several filings, the gist of what she's trying to accomplish is for the court to have a public hearing determining whether a hearing should be closed or a record should be sealed before those things are happened. She argues that them not having done this doesn't really go with Idaho procedure, but she also argues that the public does not know if a fair trial is occurring if the case is being held in closed hearings and sealed records. And she argues that the defendants are entitled to a public case. 
And so here's the kicker. Lori Hellis has a contract with Pegasus Books to write a book about this case. So it isn't her own best interest to be able to see more of what is happening now versus at a possible trial. Because if they have a plea agreement, it will never go to trial and we will never get those details. Right. So if things aren't unsealed now, there is a possibility we may never know. Yeah, I don't think it's the whole, the public needs to see it's, I need to finish my book. I do not know her personally. It's a hard sell for me to think that her having access to information to write a book is not part of her central motivation for this. Mm -hmm. And of course, we all want all of the case details about this. But you know what I want more than that? A fair trial. I want a fair trial and I want a sentence worthy of their crimes. Yes. And that is so much more important to me than for us to be able to talk about case details. Yep. At the end of the day, we want justice for the people who died and we want the people who did these things to have meaningful consequences. And if that means that we aren't seeing every single thing that happens, okay. And now I say that. If you've listened to us before, you've heard our True Crime Digest, which we literally just talked about last week, where we talked about that in some jurisdictions, there's no live stream, there's no feed, there's just the transcripts and orders. And that one of the things that you lose in those is you lose tone and you lose the way that people are spoken to and the nonverbal communication that you get. It's a hard balance. In the other case that I'm specifically referencing, it's it has to do with the West Memphis Three, and they're trying to petition for new evidence to be tested so that they can get a step closer to finding who actually killed three young boys. Yeah. They want everything to be out in the open so that they can share it. Mm-hmm. There is no trial at stake in that instance. Sharing those hearings, it hurts no one. It doesn't impede justice in any way. No. I mean, other than the people that actually did it. Knowing that it's coming. Yes, exactly. And so what I think is so interesting is that when a court is determining whether a hearing should be closed or a record should be sealed, they have a test for that. And it's called the Press Enterprise Test. It's also known as the Logic and Experience Test. But under this, the court needs to consider two things. And the first is whether the place and process have historically been open to the press and general public. Like, is it the norm? And whether public access plays a significant positive role in the functioning of the particular process in question. Okay. When you say positive role, what do we mean? Do we mean that an innocent person is exonerated? Do we mean that there's a fair trial? I would say that in this instance, what you want is you want a fair trial. That's what she's arguing. She's arguing that this will make a fair trial. Yes. Jurors having more information about this case beforehand... Does that make it fair? I don't want to sacrifice justice for knowing case details because that's where true crime starts to get a little bit gross. Yeah. When we start impeding on victims' families getting justice and having closure. I want the two children and the two spouses and possibly more people, right, like to get justice more than that person deserves money who's not even a part of it. Exactly. So the state also moved to conduct consumptive testing on the DNA samples that they have. And just as a reminder, consumptive testing means that when they do that test, it will use the remainder of the sample that is available. So to support this, they have the affidavit of Rylene L. Nolan. And Rylene has been a lab manager for the Idaho State 
Police Forensic Services Lab in Meridian, Idaho, since 2014, although she's worked there since 2002. So she's been there a minute. So let's talk about some of the DNA evidence that there is. One is hairs on duct tape that was found inside a body bag that the Rexburg police identified as being used to transport JJ's remains. That hurts my heart. Another one is quote unquote ridge detail that was found on the adhesive side of the tape for trace or touch DNA. And what exactly is ridge detail? And that is a finger, palm, or footprint. These can be latent, which means that they are not visible to the naked eye, or they may be patent, which means that they can be seen without additional technology. Typically, this seems like it's discussed for fingerprints, but here they are going to see if they can extract DNA from the sample. Also, there's small dark spots on the handles of a shovel and a pickaxe. This like makes my heart sink, like knowing what they might have used. Yeah, I mean, it's bad enough when we talk about their burial, but when we're talking about like paraphernalia used in their death, it's just so much more grim. Yeah, I get like a like lump in my stomach and my heart like stops for a second. I'm like, oh, these poor babies. Yeah. So the Rexburg Police Department reported that these were from Chad's garage or barn. He has like this little like storage area is what I thought it was when I drove by. The lab does not intend to consume the entirety of each of the tested spots. This means that it won't be consumptive testing, which uses the entire sample, as Lindsay said before. So at least this one, like they might be able to do again if need be. They also have swabs of tape areas and swabs of evidence under JJ's fingernails during the autopsy. Also to note, in Nolan's affidavit, she says that consumptive testing is required to analyze some of the samples and that using half of a sample would not render a reliable result. So that means some of them they really can't do again. So like some of them they might be able to, some of them they won't, which is a little scary, right? Like you have to do it right the first time or you might not be able to do it again. That stresses me out. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. That's why I am not a lab technician of any kind. There hasn't been a ruling on this just yet, but in the past, it seemed like Pryor was opposed, which what is he not opposed to? (laughs) Just anything. So we also saw some questions around this. And one of the questions we noticed was, does Judge Boyce have to approve of the DNA being tested? Would any defense attorney not oppose this? I mean, I feel like that's a reasonable question, because if you think your client's DNA is on something, you're going to be like, don't look at it. I don't think you should, right? Relevant precedent suggests that as a matter of course, the state should seek the court's approval before testing consumptive evidence if it is being done after charges have been filed. And it's that after charges that have been filed part that's important here. Alternatively, if testing is done before the charges have been filed, there may be different notice requirements for specific people who they have kind of narrowed down to potential suspects. Mm -hmm. Still, though, the state must conduct the consumptive testing with good faith. Right. So you can't do it because you want to get rid of evidence. You also can't get rid of evidence without a good faith reason. Right. So why would an attorney not oppose that? As an attorney, your arguments against something should be rooted in case law and statute and or legal theory. You can't oppose something simply because it would be bad for your client. It's also not likely that the court would grant frivolous oppositions to the consumptive testing. So I am of the opinion that it's going to get tested likely. Yeah. So another question, why wasn't the consumptive testing 
already completed. It feels like this would be something that would have been done like as a normal part of the investigation before the charges were filed. But the consumptive testing hasn't already been completed because anything having to do with Lori's case was completely frozen until she was deemed mentally competent, which makes sense. It's more just us again being like, I want answers now. Just another reason is that there's not a provision in Idaho code that sets out a standard for when and how consumptive testing should be performed. So rather, the state provided relevant precedent and guidelines from the American Bar Association so that they could really push this along. And the precedent that the state cited includes considerations that that the court needs to think about, like, is the testing necessary? Is the full consumption of the evidence necessary? So when Nolan said, we need to use the whole sample in order to do the evidence, Mm -hmm. that was them being like, the whole sample is necessary. Is the consumptive testing being done in good faith? Yes, we are testing to see if there's a DNA match, not so that the evidence no longer exists. Right. Were the defendants given sufficient notice and opportunity to respond to the request? And I mean, I feel like that's a hell yes, because we talked about this months, maybe a year ago, that we had already brought up consumptive testing as soon, like right out the gate, they started talking about that because the state knew that they were going to have to use all of the sample to do the testing. That all sounds good. Like they're looking at everything. They're being very cautious. They're moving a little slow, but for good reason. Slow and steady. Mm -hmm. So Lori's attorney, Archibald, filed two separate filings to remand the indictment back to the grand jury. Basically, this would mean that a new grand jury would be impaneled and they would be asked to vote. So we're going to talk about both of these filings in a little bit more detail than we have anything else tonight. But I think that these are really important to understand, especially because they could have monumental impacts on the rest of the case. So the first motion to remand the indictment back to the grand jury was in relation to counts one and three of the document. And so as a reminder, count one was conspiracy to commit first degree murder and grand theft by deception for Tylee. And then three was for JJ. So specifically, Archibald argues that the counts one and three will be confusing to the jury and that the crimes, as they're stated, they lump two crimes into one allegation and that the underlying statutes for those crimes don't overlap. So he argues that it's impossible to know whether the impaneled grand jury found all of the elements for both crimes or if they said they we think that she's guilty for one of these. So we'll say yes. And so Idaho Criminal Rule 6.5b allows there to be more than two separate charges in a grand jury indictment, but only if each charge is actually voted on. And indictments can include separate charges, but they have to be separated into different counts. So it's not that they couldn't include them in format in this way, but they had to make sure that they got votes for each one. So once the grand jury has returned a verdict, they cannot change the indictment that the grand jury voted on because otherwise that's not the indictment that was returned by them. That's something else entirely. Yeah. So in this filing, Archibald asked the court to either one, remand the indictment back to the grand jury so they can vote on the charges separately. Two, strike language in counts one and three so that it's clearer what they mean. And the other... And I laugh because it's just so fucking ridiculous. But the other relief that Archibald suggests is that the court order that punishment for counts one and three, each separately, cannot exceed five years of imprisonment and or a fine of (laughs) $50,000. He's like, can you just make it so when I lose, she's not going away for that long? This is how people end up with 10-year prison sentences for a murder of multiple people, right? Yeah. 
if you've listened to us before, you know we love jam cats. Cats who don't like jam. Yep. That is our example. So we're going to we're gonna use that to kind of talk about how this works. So say Amanda, a notorious cat, is on trial because she broke into someone's house in January and in March she stole jam. If the prosecutors ask the grand jury to vote on whether there's probable cause to convict Amanda for breaking and entering as well as stealing jam, they may say yes even if they only believe that there was probable cause that she committed one of the crimes. And in this theoretical world of cat jam thieving, let's assume that these statutes, like the ones in counts one and three, are fully separate. That There's no overlapping elements here. The time, the time period jump is in there to do that too, but just assume we're talking fully different elements here, just like in this case. It would seem strange, right? Because if you're like, do you think that she broke into this house? Do you think that she sold jam? Yeah, you have to say yes. A yes, what does that mean? So it's a good argument. So additionally, Archibald filed the second motion, basically, so that they can determine whether there are alleged aggravating factors. And we're going to get into what aggravating circumstances are and why they're important for this case. So stick with us because this is a little bit more beige than the rest of what we've been talking about. But he wants the grand jury to conduct a hearing. So it's not necessarily, you know, getting rid of what we've already done. It's a hearing on whether there are statutory aggravating factors that the prosecution has already alleged. Because when there's aggravating factors at play, that triggers some other different things in the situation. So aggravating factors alleged by the prosecution were that the grand jury received evidence and returned in the indictment on 524. And the aggravating circumstances were, one, murders were committed for remuneration. Because we think that one of the reasons that they had killed them was for insurance money. And social security benefits. Two, murders were especially heinous, atrocious, or cruel. All of the above, yeah. Agreed. Three, manifesting exceptional depravity. Absolutely. Four, by the murders or circumstances surrounding their commission. Five, the defendant exhibited utter disregard for human life. And six is, from the defendant's actions, whether it was before, during, or after the crime, does it seem likely that the defendant will commit murder again? I think so. I agree. Seems like she doesn't really care and that she'll just keep going as long as anyone will let her. Yep. So a prosecutor can initiate criminal proceedings by either a grand jury proceeding or a preliminary hearing before an impartial magistrate. If the case is not brought via grand jury, then the defendant is entitled to a preliminary hearing. Archibald argues that Lori is entitled to a grand jury finding on probable cause for charges and for each of the alleged statutory aggravating factors. So this has all seemed like legal soup so far, correct? Yes, we're talking about legal soup. A little bit. So our second motion, he's basically like, you're saying these aggravating factors as though you've proven them. There are a lot of them. You have not yet proven them because a lot of them are things that they're going to prove in the case, right? Like they're going to prove that like she did X, Y, Z. So you can't say like she did it with this way before you've proven that she's done it this way. Right. That's kind of the gist of this. But like, I feel like breaking it down, it kind of gives it a little bit more pizzazz because we're going to talk about the death penalty in Idaho. And that's what this is all about. From what I saw, it seems like there's a specific process that must be followed for the death penalty to even be on the table. And so what the prosecution must do is file an intent to seek the death penalty within this prescribed time before the trial, which they did. And then after the conviction for the first degree murder, so once the trial is done, they're then going to have a sentencing proceeding. In that sentencing proceeding, the jury then determines whether there was at at least one statutory aggravating circumstance that was proven by the state 
beyond a reasonable doubt. And so that list that Amanda gave, those are all of the aggravating factors where we were like, yes, 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 yes. They just need one, which feels like a low bar in this situation. Yeah, it's good, though. The jury will then, in that sentencing portion, they'll determine whether there was at least one, and then they will weigh whether the death sentence seems like an appropriate punishment, given the, you know, what they have done and the aggravating circumstances. Archibald questions whether some of the circumstance would even apply to Laurie, given her mental health issues. Yeah. And so what he's basically saying is, right, they need one, right? So think of a massive dartboard. You have a big circle, and it is the size of a billboard and you're standing 10 feet away and you just need something to stick. That is the list of aggravating factors. He is trying to get some of those aggravating factors knocked off of the list based on her mental competency. So what they're throwing darts at is a dartboard, not a billboard. (laughs) So I think it's an interesting defense. I don't know how successful he'll be, but it's a very interesting one, I feel like, because it seems very convoluted. But it kind of does make sense, right? If we're saying that she's not mentally competent, how much of this can we do, right? Because I think, Amanda, before she was arrested, what thing that she did sticks in your brain, like more than anything else? Like if someone's like the Lori Vallow case and they're like, you're talking to them about it. What is the first thing that you bring up when you're like, not maybe not the first thing, but like what comes to mind when you're thinking about Lori? When I think of Lori... The first thing is like when we all saw the case, I think, is like her in Hawaii in a wedding dress with Chad, right? And then you're like, oh, both their spouses magically died. And now their kids are missing. Weird, right? And so you know that they got married after the children's death. Hmm. Mm-hmm. What sticks in my head is them in Hawaii again. And I believe it's Date Eaton who has like a microphone in her face and is like, where are the kids, right? Like, we just want to know where your children are. And she is smiling. Yeah. And like she's beautiful and she's just smiling and acting like they're paparazzi and she's famous. And it's it's that person. Mm-hmm. Like that's who I think of when I see Laurie Vallow. It's that I'm smiling. Yeah. And I've done the worst thing kind of person. And so if that version of her was not mentally competent to stand trial, can we judge her on aggravating circumstances? I think some of them can still stick. I think some of them can still stick. I think it's going to be harder. And I think he's trying to lay that that framework now. Yeah. And so I think as they start moving closer and closer towards a time when they might accept a plea agreement or there might be plea agreements suggested, having things like this makes it much more likely that Lori might get a more favorable plea agreement, especially if she's willing to testify against Chad. I still don't know if she would be the one to testify against him. I don't know why my gut just says like, unless like Archibald can talk her into it. And it seems like he's actually like doing his job. And it's like a night and day difference between him and Means. Yes. He's actually being professional. And it is a little intimidating now that we're like, oh, she has like a real attorney now. I mean, if I was Chad, I would be shitting. Like, wouldn't you be like, fuck, she's got way better counsel than me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that he's actually, yeah, doing a good job. And I hate that he's doing a good job, but he's doing a good job. I love that he's doing a good job. It means that when she is convicted, she will not be able to say it is because of ineffective counsel. And that's probably one of the reasons why Mark Means was pushed out of this case. You tried having your Lifetime movie Angel Son be your defense attorney. <laughs> Let's call in like an actual adult to the room. Yeah. Yeah. It's just I mean, I'm I still think she's going to go down. Both of them are going to go down no matter what. Like there's just too much evidence. There's too much. It's more like, how will it go down at the end? And one of the questions, another question that we saw was, is it typical to remand to a grand jury? 
So I wasn't 100% sure of this because I've never seen it before. And so I Googled it quickly and I typed in Idaho and I saw dozens and dozens of cases where attorneys argued this. And so I think that this is a relatively reasonable argument. It doesn't seem like it's random wizardry from Archibald where he's just trying to like throw spaghetti at a wall and see what sticks. It seems like there's sound reasoning. He's doing his job. He's doing it right. And he's trying everything. Yeah. I mean, I think I think he's doing his job. You have to zealously represent your client. And even if we don't like it, that's what you got to do. And he's doing it. Yes. Yes. And we did go through the groups and we were like, okay, what are the questions this month? What are people wondering? But if you have a question about what's going on in the case, feel free to email us, tweet us, Instagram us, whatever, and we'd be happy to answer it on our next Valo update. Yeah, we also upload all of our episodes to YouTube, too. So if you're listening on there, feel free to leave a a question in the comments. That is like the benefit of YouTube is that you can have a conversation on the actual thing versus like disjointed. Yeah. However you want to send them. We want your questions and we'll work through them and include them on our next episode. Yeah. And that goes for really any of them, honestly, like any of the cases we're covering, True Crime Digest, all of it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's fun to dissect them, too. And sometimes it's a question that other people have, too, but they're too afraid to ask. Yeah. Well, and I feel like sometimes it it gives us a different way of framing a discussion. So it's like, oh, why would they seal a record? Well, they'd seal it for this reason and that reason. And we can kind of share information about the case without being like, and then this filing and then this filing and then this filing. I am thrilled, happy to be here doing it. And Amanda's like, I wish this would end. (laughs) I just want the payoff, you know, like I'm like, get to trial. I've been waiting a long time, though, too. I'm like, yeah, that's fair. You've been following the case longer than I have been. Yeah. When when the kids were missing and then like it was like, okay, they're not they're not coming back. They're somewhere. We just need to find where their bodies are. And then when they were found and I'm like, okay, they need to go away forever. Let's get this done. They're terrible human beings. Exactly. I mean, I thought that when I saw the the body cam footage with Charles. Yeah. And so that pretty much wraps up our case coverage for Lori Vallow this time. We generally, we try to do smaller bite-sized updates after our True Crime Digest, but there was just a lot to cover this month. And we had a lot that we wanted to do in True Crime Digest. So we're like, we're just going to put this in its own. We've had a lot more followers lately, too. So if you're new to this case, it's a lot. It's it's a vast amount of information. But so tell us if you've got questions. Tell us if there's other cases that are going on that you want more coverage on that you're wondering about. We're intrigued as well. Absolutely. And with that, have a good weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, drewcreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram, at True Creeps Pod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at True Creeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps. <laughs>